In his book, God in the Dark, The Assurance of Faith Beyond a Shadow of a Doubt, author Oz Guinness discusses the topic of doubt. And he tells about a time that he was visiting in southern Europe. He was at a village, and in this little village, this little hamlet in South Europe, he witnessed a peasant with a donkey, and this donkey had huge bales of firewood loaded on its back, and the peasant was there moving this donkey along, and the beast was staggering its way up this steep path there in the little village. And it was a hot day, and the donkey became overheated and then exhausted, and its pace then slowed. And Oz Guinness then said that the peasant started swearing at this poor little animal, and then the peasant started beating the animal. And the donkey stumbled up a few more steps on the incline, panting in the hot sun, but it finally exhausted. It sank to the ground, and then the peasant proceeded to beat it more and beat it and beat it and beat it again. Nas Guinness wrote these words. He said, Many Christians treat their faith just like that donkey. Believe this, believe that, stop doubting, come on, do more, try harder, let's get going, believe more firmly, believe more firmly. We flogged the bare back of faith and then undernourished and overloaded, it collapses to the ground. And once there, we beat it even more. And Os Guinness asks, which is worse, the cruelty or the stupidity? Which is sadder, the plight of faith and the donkey or the plight of the owner? I wonder how many of us here today are struggling. I wonder how many of us have a faith that just feels exhausted and just can hardly stand. I wonder how many of us are struggling with doubt. That's what I'm wondering. You just, you're, you're here, but you're just not sure you believe this Christianity. There's so much violence in our world. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much anxiety about the future. And it just seems to be prolonged. And it's like, God, I mean, are you there? We're just in the middle of the darkest portion of the night. And we want to know, God, do you care? We read about 10-year-olds who are shot while inside their home, and, and we feel sad and we feel mad, but then it's our 10-year-old, and we feel doubt. And that's not even the deepest problem. On top of the doubt, there's the guilt and the shame we feel about the doubt. And is it really okay to bring my doubt into a place like this? What will people think? What will the pastor say? And so we doubt and then we feel shame for the doubt. And, and, and I, think that's going, I think what's going on is because we don't understand what doubt is. So what is doubt? 
let me propose that doubt is malnourished faith. That's what doubt is. Malnourished faith. Doubt is faith that is underfed and underfortified. Doubt is faith that suffers from food insecurity. Now, viewed that way, it really changes the picture, doesn't it? I mean, do you feel inferior because you get hungry? Or do you need to eat? See, do you need to be fed? Do you need fortification? See, see that point of view just changes everything. And no wonder Jesus' own brother said this about doubt. Jude, the brother of Jesus, Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Do you know that was there? Have mercy on those who doubt. Anybody here doubting today? Anybody here feeling insecure, reluctant? It's okay. Come to Jesus. He is merciful. He is merciful. And I want us to see the mercy extended to a doubter in today's scripture. Today, I want us to consider the life of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And his is a story of doubt. And as we look at his story, we're going to see what doubt is, and, and then we're going to see how God extended mercy to him. It's in a way you wouldn't think, but it's mercy. His is a story of doubt that became, through God's mercy, a song of certainty. Zechariah's story of doubt, Zechariah's song of certainty. So take your Bibles, and if you'll turn to Luke chapter 1, you'll find Luke chapter 1 on page 855. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please avail yourself to the copy that is in the pouch as we consider the life of the father of John the Baptist, Zachariah's story, and Zachariah's song. Now, Luke's gospel begins with an address to the recipient of this gospel, a person by the name of Theophilus. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time in the past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. There he is. Theophilus is the recipient of this gospel. And why is this orderly account, this eyewitness account, given? Verse 4, that you may have certainty. So it's an echo relating to the idea of doubt. Luke wants Theophilus to be certain concerning the things he's been taught. Luke, who has himself interviewed and investigated and recorded eyewitness testimony, I want you to have certainty. So these verses deal with 
assurance in the face of uncertainty, grace in the presence of doubt. And so immediately Luke plunges the reader into a man full of uncertainty, a man with whom Theophilus can identify, a man by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. He's a Levite. In the days of King Herod, verse 5, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, right there, you've got a family that has quite a spiritual lineage. Look at their character as described in verse 6. They're righteous, blameless, pious, dedicated. They had really about all they could ever want in this life, except they had no children. And their culture back then responded to childlessness with, with uh, what's the matter with you? What did you do that God would withhold the blessing from you? Well, the reader is put on alert at the beginning that they're blameless and righteous. So just because God declared them pious didn't mean the culture thought they were. But still Zacharias served. He woke up, he got up, he showed up. And he did his job with an ache in his heart. He has no son. He has no family lineage. And yet out of this emptiness, he still acted as a priest. So he's clergy. He's a man of the cloth here. He's struggling. Zechariah was part of a division of priests, and there were 24 divisions of priests in Israel. Each division had 1,000 priests. And they took their turn doing temple service in Jerusalem throughout the year. And there was a lottery, and if your name came up while your division was serving in Jerusalem, you were given the privilege of burning incense in the holy place of the temple. Now, the holy place of the temple was the next most holy place in all of Israel. The holy place was just outside that mysterious cube called the Holy of Holies, And there in the holy place, a priest would come and would offer incense before the Lord. And the incense would rise, representing the prayers of God's people. I mean, this was a privilege. And once chosen for this privilege of offering incense, and not every priest had that privilege. Some lived their whole lives, and their number never came up, and... But once chosen, you were not eligible until every other priest had served. So it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So naturally, when you know, Zechariah finds out, well, the family's going to be coming to Jerusalem, and they're going to be a part of this momentous event and this time when Zechariah comes to the temple, and they remain where they're supposed to be in the court of the temple. And, and Zechariah finally gets to see a part of the temple that he'd never seen before and that he will never see again. He'll be just steps away from the most holy place in all of Israel. 
and Zechariah will come. He'll have a shovel in his hands. And on the shovel will be these burning, glowing coals. And so it'll be, it'll be numinous. It'll be warm. It'll be glowing. It'll be an orange, lowly lit area. He'll come and he'll spread the coals out there on that altar of incense. And then he'll take the incense that's prepared for worship. And at the appropriate time, he'll put the incense there. He puts it there on the, uh, there on the altar and the smoke will rise. And there in the glow and the orange and the, the kind of the mysteriousness of the whole place, the smoke will rise as if to veil the holiness of God, this mystery of the God who created the heavens and the earth. And, and the smoke rises, he puts the incense down, and the smoke rises, and the Scripture says that that's when Zechariah saw Gabriel. And Zechariah went, <laughs> It's right there in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Not Zechariah's right side, the altar of incense right side. And Zechariah was troubled. I would think so. And fear fell on him. And the angel said to him, what do angels always say the first time they see someone? Fear not. Do not be, af do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And the angel Gabriel proceeds to reveal the destiny of this child. You'll have a son. You'll call him John. He will bring you joy and gladness. He will bring joy and gladness to many. Verse 15, he will be great before the Lord. Gabriel proceeds to say how John will, will belong to the lineage of those who take the Nazarite vow. He will be filled not with strong drink, but by the Holy Spirit in the strength and the spirit of Elijah the prophet, even in his mother's womb. And, and Zechariah, God will change, will use him to change hearts. People can change. Faith can be nourished. Even in the cruel Roman Empire where fathers abandoned children to the street by exposure daily. Zechariah, your son, will prophesy and those fathers' cruel hearts will be softened to their children. Your son will transform disobedient, hardened hearts to wise, just hearts. Verse 17. And your son will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah, the Lord is preparing to arrive and he needs an advance team and your son is the advance team. Think about it. A once in a lifetime opportunity. 
in the next most holy place, in the holy city, this blameless man encounters an angel who stands in the presence of God. This angel has appeared with a word from the Lord himself about a promised son, about answered prayer, about a destiny delivered. Whatever will Zachariah's response be to this glorious good news? No. <laughs> no. Show me some ID. I need a badge. How shall I know this? Verse 18. How shall I know this? For, for I am an old man, and my wife is an old... She's advanced in years. You see what's happening here? You see what's going on here? Huh? Don't miss this. Zechariah has just prioritized personal experience over divine revelation. Sit in that for just a minute. Sit in that as we consider our culture. He's just prioritized his personal experience over, he's just prioritized his personal experience over divine revelation. And as a result, his faith is malnourished. And note this Zechariah struggles as a believer. As a man of the cloth, this righteous, blameless cleric struggles between earthly reality, his earthly reality, and divine revelation. And that struggle created a gap, and that gap is what we call doubt. Doubt is the gap in the canyon between faith and disbelief. Doubt is not disbelief. Disbelief is willful refusal. Disbelief is, don't confuse me with the evidence my mind's made up. Disbelief is living like there's no God. Doubt, though, is a state of mind in suspension between faith and disbelief. So that it's neither of them wholly and each of them partly. Doubt is faith in two minds. It's not fatal. It is serious. And there's a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind, and then there's a kind of a doubt that's the sign of an open mind. There's a doubt that seeks answers, and there's a doubt that is a defense against the possibility of answers. In Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Mary expressed openness to the revelation of Gabriel, and she relinquished control to God. Here, Zechariah, he's reluctant. Mary's tone to Gabriel was how. Zechariah's tone to Gabriel was weather. So what kind of doubt do you possess? 
whichever, bring them to God. Who gives mercy to those who doubt? So, so when you face doubt, you are free to express your doubt to the God who desires to give mercy to those who doubt. And this God is free to answer accordingly, <laughs> which is exactly what happens. Just as there are different ways of doubting, oh, God's mercy is, man is, is manifest in different ways as well. And this is kind of what we see here in the Scripture. I mean, you know, Mary said, May it be to me as you have spoken. Zechariah said, Well, how shall I know this? I am an old man. And, and Gabriel's going, Well, how shall, how shall I know this? I, I, you shall know this. I'm telling you this right now. What are you talking about? So, so Gabriel answers an I with an I, right? How shall I know this? I am an old man. Gabriel says, Well, well, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you good news. That's why he's standing at the right side of the altar of incense, which means that, that, that Zechariah is looking to the left he's, because he's at the, right, he's at the right hand of God. God's given him this message directly. This is revelation. A messenger of God has arrived with the word of God. You doubt? Oh, well, let me help. And immediately, immediately, Zechariah experienced that dreaded radio disease. Dead air. <laughs> yeah, it's there in verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah, at that moment, could not speak. Which means he could not teach God's Word. He could not preach God's Word. He could not go to the fireside room after services and pray over God's people who need to be strengthened in prayer. He, he couldn't be out in the foyer to offer a benediction or a blessing over children and grandchildren and families and individuals. He couldn't fulfill his calling because he failed to believe the word of the Lord. Because he failed to believe the word of the Lord, the Lord prohibited him from speaking words on behalf of the Lord. You see how it works? And you know, after a while, people are out on the outside, they're, they're waiting for him to come out. Come out and they're going, where, where did he go? Did, did he die? What, what happened? Is Elijah come with the chariot and whisked him off? Well, where is he? And finally, Zechariah emerged. And he can't speak. Verse 22, he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. So something wonderful has happened, but how, how do you explain an angelic vision with hand motions? I mean, so after 400 years of silence in Israel's history, 
Something has happened in this temple. Something. But they didn't know. It's a mystery. God has been silent since Malachi. But now he at last speaks. And the person to whom he spoke came out and couldn't speak. So on the one hand, yes, it's a severe mercy upon Zechariah. But on the other hand, God is intentionally concealing his will, his will until the appointed time. And then the announcement came. The announcement came. After they went home, the people heard the news. Elizabeth's pregnant. Elizabeth? We thought she was past child. No, she's pregnant. She's expecting. Question. When did Zechariah move from doubt to faith? I'd say by the time he left that temple. And yet, hear me now, God is not up to quick fixes. So for the next nine months, Zechariah is silent, unable to communicate. Nine months of taking words in. Nine months of listening. Nine months of contemplating. Nine months of slowing down, of hearing, of processing, of feeding his faith. Nine months of praying, Lord, what are you doing? He, he, he's praying in his heart because he can't speak. What are you doing in my life? What are you showing me? What kind of a man are you making me? Oh, God, what is it? And maybe Elizabeth is praying a different prayer, like, thank you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Thank you, thank you. I don't know. I wonder, though, if we could use the gift of simplicity and silence, don't you think? I'm just wondering. Listen to, listen to this article that I read this week, and you tell me if this isn't our culture. American culture insists that we run at a breathless pace from sugar lay celebration to sugar lay celebration, Christmas, Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on and on and on. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands that we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, 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 fun. The tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and enough positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. Is that not our culture? Anybody here doubting today? If so, if we're confused about what God might be doing in our life, maybe it's wise for us to push the mute button on our own lives. Maybe it's wise to go silent like Zechariah. If we lose the voice of our own ego and cease our ambling thoughts and go deep within, we can pray simply and intently not to convince God of anything, 
but to empty ourselves so that we might be filled with His Holy Spirit. And then, when the time is right, we'll be able to speak what is right and true and good. And then having spoken the right thing, we'll do the right thing. And our words will be the voice of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in us. And we will then be speaking words of hope and joy in Christ. And that's, that's really what we're seeing here as we proceed through the life of Zechariah. Look in verse 57, our actual scripture reading today. It came time for Elizabeth to give birth. Look, behold, a son. A son. Oh, Elizabeth, you, you are among the great and godly women of old. Sarah, Hannah, the mother of Samson. God still answers prayer. And then came the eighth day, verse 59, the ceremony of the day of circumcision. Circumcision, which is the mark of the covenant of Israel's God and Israel. And on that day, the child will be named. And everybody in that ceremony just assumed that the child's name would be Ben Zechariah. Ben Zechariah, son of Zechariah. You'll name him Zechariah, the firstborn son. Yes, of course. Elizabeth said, no, no, no. His name, he, he will be called John. John? John? No, nobody in your family is named John. Zechariah? You know, what say ye? Verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, he wrote, get this, not, not, not his name will be John, rather, Ioannes Estin Onoma Autu. His name is John. He already has a name. He's already been named. God has named him. God has named him John. John. John's name means God is gracious. God is gracious. And at that moment... Zechariah's tongue was loosed and he spoke and he blessed God and immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened. He, he was blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors and all of these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and people were asking, look at verse 66, what then will this child be? What then will this child be? And this is where the story transitions into the song because Zechariah's song is the answer to that question. Verses 68 to 79 answer that question. Zechariah's song. And it's, there, there are two parts to his song. Verses 68 to 75, God's initiating grace. And 76 to 79, God's merciful light. 
Verses 68 to 75, God's initiating grace. Zechariah praises and blesses God for his initiating, deliberate, move-making grace. He has visited. Notice how God is the subject of these verbs. He has visited. And by visited, we don't mean visited like, I'm going to stay for the weekend and have fun with you. It means he has visited. He's come to help. He has visited and he has redeemed. Verse 69, he has raised. He spoke to show mercy, to remember his holy covenant. He's raised up the horn of salvation. I'm not talking about a trumpet or a cornet. I'm talking about a bull or a water buffalo rearing its horned head in a show of power. God reveals his power to rescue his people, to deliver us, verse 74, that we might serve him Without fear, God's initiating grace does this. God does this. We love because he first loved us. I'm thinking of Pastor David Platt, who was once sitting outside a temple in a foreign country having a conversation with two people from two different religions. And one of them said to him, Well, David, you know, all religions are the same. We all worship the same God, just in different ways. And David Platt listened carefully and then replied courteously. He said, well, it sounds like you think that God is at the top of a mountain and there are like three paths and we're all taking different paths to the top and we may have different routes, but at the end, we're all going to end up in the same location. And one of them said, yes, yes, that's exactly what we believe. And David Platt said, well, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to come up to him? What if I told you that he actually came down the mountain to us where we are? And one of them said, well, that would be awesome. David Platt said, well, that's Christianity. That's the difference between Christianity and every other faith system. The Bible tells how God did not wait for us to find him, that he has come to us. He's made a way to himself through Jesus. In other words, God takes the initiative. Zechariah's nine months of silence mirror Israel's 400 years of silence. But now God is on the move. And therefore, who God is determines who John is. God's reality determines John's identity, which is where we get to the second part of this song. And you, child, verse 76. So Zechariah says to his son, here's who you are. Here's who you are, son. Here's who God says you are. You are not who you say you are. You are who God says you are. You are a prophet of the Most High. Your entire life will be to magnify the supremacy of the Most High. So Zechariah's song is not just about the birth of John, but it's about of the one who follows John, the one who is greater than John, the one whom John will go before as the advance team. Do you notice that? You see, that's what's going on in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke's Gospel. You see that when you read Luke 1 and 2, you see it mirrors back and forth between 
John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus. And they're parallel. Godly parents, angelic appearance, Mary's song, Zachariah's song. That's intentional. They're parallel, but they're not equal. For while John will go before the Lord, Jesus is the Lord. And he is always presented as superior. And John's mission is to prepare Israel for the Messiah and then disappear in the Messiah. His mission is self-described in John 3.30. John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. There's There's a life mission statement. You looking for a life mission statement? John 3.30. He must increase. I must decrease. And if that's not enough, then add this one in John chapter 1, verse 20. Oh, this, this will take a lot of anxiety off of so many of us here. John chapter 1, verse 20. This is from John the Baptist himself. I am not the Christ. Did you just feel the pressure off you? I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. So so Zechariah's song was about how John's life would disappear in, in Christ. And church family, believe me when I tell you this, therein lies the assurance that overwhelms all doubt. So, big idea, When you are in the darkness of doubt, feed your faith with the promises of God. Because that's that's the song of Zechariah. Because every one of those verses can be tied back to an Old Testament verse. Every one of them. (laughs) Those aren't original. Those are tied back to the promises of old. When you're in the darkness of doubt, feed your faith with the promises of God. Malnourished faith is fed and fortified by feasting on the word of Christ. For all of God's promises are yes in Christ. All of them. So look to Christ. Listen for the words of Christ. Take up and read. Anyone in the dark? Anyone in the shadow of death? Take up and read. Because of the tender mercy of our God, sunrise, sunrise shall visit us. Sunrise. Oh, I want to show you this, I want to show you this picture and then I'll be done. Look at this picture. That was this morning at 7 a.m. just outside my office. So Beth and I have a meeting every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. And we just pray for our service and just have a final communication points and prepare ourselves for our gathering. And we walked into my office and she said, look. And I look. And then I thought of verse 78 and 79. 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Don't you see? This horn of salvation, this power of God, is revealed not by a king grasping and swinging a sword, but a king whose sword is his word. And he rescues not through bloody war, but by being bloodied on the cross for our sins. He leads, his might is light. We're in the darkness. We can't find our way. But in the darkest of the night, sunrise has come. This king has come who did not seclude himself in a palace with a moat, but he walked among his people. And this king sent by God leads like sunrise. And by his son we see everything, not by coercion, but by beauty and splendor. Is life about power and taking control or possessing positional authority? Or is it in following the one who is already in control? Luke leaves no doubt. Follow him who is the morning star. Feed on his promises. For he who promised is faithful. And he, he has mercy for those who doubt. Amen.